Hello and welcome to episode 13 of React Native Radio. Today on our panel, we have Peter Pykarczyk. Hey, everyone. Lee Johnson. How's it going? Kevin Old. Hello. And I am Natter Davin. Our topic today is going to be a day in the life of a React Native developer. So what we're going to talk about is going to be kind of like the day-to-day workflow um, and how you set up your computer and what type of text editor, et cetera, et cetera, kind of just day-to-day things you might run into when you're getting going, working with React Native. So, Peter, do you want to kind of start us off? Uh, how do you kind of uh, have your workflow set up as far as like your environment and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So what I end up using is Vim, Tmux, iTerm to house everything, Xcode, obviously, and the iOS simulator. And for starters, I use this awesome app called Slate. And what it does is it lets you configure things through JavaScript, which is super nice. Let's say it's a it's a window tiling manager. Let's say I connect another monitor to Slate. It'll automatically throw my terminal and my Xcode on one monitor and then keep iOS simulator on the other, for example. Um, I, I usually do all of my development on one screen, though. So what I'll do is I'll have... Throw Slate to have Xcode in the background. iOS Simulator will take the bottom right-hand side of my screen, and then Terminal will take up the left-hand side of my screen. And I'll usually split that into separate panes: one where I'll have the task runner, and then one where I'll just do all my coding in in Vim. So, how many monitors do you have? I just use one monitor most of the time. If I'm at work, or if I do want to connect up to a station. I just use a cinema display at home, but usually usually I don't even use that anymore. I just code right off my laptop. I've just found it to be much easier to move around because I do do a lot of moving around. I'm constantly going somewhere. So it was just hard going from two to one all the time. Yeah, I definitely understand how that is. Like I've gone from anywhere between one and three, and I feel like sometimes with one, I get more accomplished for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. And it just... Because when I'm at work and I have two monitors, like I find myself moving my head back and forth to see what's on both screens. And then like I'm on the train coming home, working on stuff. And now I'm back to one. Like how do I organize all those windows without freaking out? Uh, so after that, like I just got used to using one wherever I'm at and it's made life a lot easier. Have you done any Android development yet or are you still working mainly in iOS? No, no Android development yet. I actually just got my first Android phone. I've been given the challenge to build an app someone built an Android. So I plan to win that challenge. (laughs) (laughs) But nothing, no Android stuff yet. Nice. Yeah, neither have I. I need to, uh, I've I've played around with it. Uh, We haven't built anything in production yet. And I haven't really built anything substantially yet either. But I'd like to get into that. Everything we've done so far is iOS. Yeah, same here. What's especially nice about Android is you get much more bang for your buck with the APIs. Like you get access to everything versus iOS just kind of keeps you limited. Xcode will freak out on you if you try using something you shouldn't do, even though it may be exposed and accessible. Um, your app will probably get taken down from the App Store versus Android, uh, as far as I know, lets you do whatever you want. It's like using a jailbroken iPhone all the time. <laughs> well, the approval process is automated, so there's not an actual person looking at it. 
yeah, that's kind of nice. <laughs> for, the, for the Google Play Store. It, when your app is accepted within about 15 minutes, you know, nobody looked at it. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned them, which my, my setup's going to be wildly different than that. But we have some hardcore Vim guys. And um, so I'm sure we have a lot of listeners that are hardcore Vim guys. So do you want to speak more on your uh, Vim setup? Because they vary from simple to ridiculously crazy. Like one of my, our coworkers has uh, code folding and Git commits all inside of Vim. Like everything is inside of Vim. He never has to leave there. Uh, so what can you expound on yours a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was just on, uh, Twitter today and, uh, I just kind of like threw this out there. I figured for 2016, you know, like what are people doing with Vim and Tmux and what are some cool plugins out there? Um, and I think Kent, uh, Dodds actually brought this up, uh, that syntax highlighting is still kind of a pain. Uh, with React and JavaScript and Vim. Um, but I think I've got a pretty good set of tools. It's not just one tool. Uh, so l- let me just read off some of these plugins for you guys so you can understand what I had to do to get this working. Uh, so Vim JavaScript, Vim JSX, yet another JavaScript Vim package, JavaScript library syntax, HTML5, Vim.js indent are solely the ones that I use to get JavaScript where I want it in Vim. And that includes syntax highlighting and spacing. Um, I don't have like auto completion yet, but I've kind of avoided it for now. Uh, I've been okay without it, but yeah, there's about six plugins that I have to use to get syntax highlighting to be where I want it to be. I do have you beat on the number of Vim plugins. Um, so my, uh, I'll launch into my setup a little bit. I, um, I've actually used uh, Vim for, um, I believe this will probably be going on 16 years, 15, 16 years. Holy uh, cow. Yeah, it's just been the editor that, um, that I've just developed a muscle memory for. And um, I... I know how to use it. I have kind of honed in on uh, a set of plugins. And um, what's crazy about that is I've used it for so long and and I'll learn a new way of doing something either by watching someone or I'll watch a a screencast or something like super basic. And I'll realize that that thing that I don't know about that I've just learned has existed for like 20 years in Vim and I just didn't know about it. So, um, I'll try to learn that, but, um, I use Vim and terminal and so far with any of the react native, uh, or exponent projects I've worked with, I've not had a single issue with, um, with the, the compatibility and, and working with the code I need to work with. Um, one of the things that I, uh, was initially when, when they, when Facebook, announced react native i was like oh man i have to use xcode and i don't i don't want to give up my editor um but i've so far i've not had any issue and i just kind of leave uh xcode in the background and just kind of hit the play button and put the simulator um in in one quadrant and i'll um i did for a while develop off of my 
laptop only, uh, usually a 15 inch um, is what I've always had. So I've just kind of embraced that constraint. But the past two years, I've had a, uh, an off-brand 27-inch monitor, um, and I finally in the past year have learned how to set it up the way uh, I think it should should be. And so I, I literally define quadrants, and I use a different window manager. Uh, this one's called Moom, M-O-O-M, and um, it's really powerful in that it, um, it lets you save the configurations of your windows. So if you have your um, your browser in one place and your chat in another place, you can hit save and then it remembers those applications in that place. And you can even tie it to where it automatically switches those and puts them at their right um, widths and heights um, when it detects a certain monitor. So I have it set up to where when I plug my laptop in to my large display, it will automatically reorient the windows. It looks like something out of science fiction that just like all the windows start moving around and getting into their place. But it's able to detect that large display. Um, and then I don't have anything for when I disconnect it to a smaller monitor, but I could, or, or just have it on the uh, uh, the MacBook itself. Like I don't have that set up. But, um, but what I've done is kind of divided my screen into quadrants. So I have uh, the first quadrant, and those are equal parts. Um, and I, I then overlap. Um, so I have most things that are like chat or they're a console or the, um, the react native utility when you run the NPM start, for instance, I have that in like a, a smaller quadrant or actually fit into a quadrant. And then my main editor terminal. So I use iterm two and, um, I have that kind of overlap the quadrant. So I I kind of break, I, I establish the rule of quadrants and I kind of break it when it's something that big. And the same for my, my browser as well. If I'm doing web development uh, or the, the Chrome debugger in um, React Native, I, I make that a larger piece of the screen so that I have enough, um, I have visibility into everything so that I can quickly iterate. Uh, and I was, um, I was really surprised when I was working with Exponent recently and that it didn't have the con the control R uh, refresh that that React Native has, but hopefully that'll uh, that'll make its way into it because it's extremely valuable. And once you get in that kind of workflow, you you have everything in in view, and then you're not you can just kind of look from one area to the other and and iterate really really quickly. So, but I I did have the same issue with the syntax highlighting and over the, over time using different, different plugins and all of my stuff is on GitHub uh, in my profile. So I can link to that. Um, and you know, it's, I use different plugins to help with, with that syntax. Um, and I'm the same way Lee as your friend. I have, uh, I, I don't live in Vim, but I have learned to, to make it long lived or a long lived session. So I'll launch it and then I'll open multiple files and, I'll see my GitHub or my Git status in there, so I know which lines have changed and um, which lines were deleted or added. So I have that that kind of feedback, but I don't I don't subscribe to the whole operating system uh, is Vim. So yeah, <laughs> I, I think it even has a task manager and email client in there. Yeah, th there's that and um, IRC. Um, 
there's there's some amazing stuff in there but and there's also amazing stuff in Emacs as well i mean that's the same those those two ecosystems have just built up to where you can you're it's literally an operating system but i i, I don't use those i simply like to keep a long lived history i do use uh the t- i don't use tabs but i use um they may uh, buffers i've learned to use buffers in them over the past year and so i'm able to toggle between it's somewhat like tabs but um there you literally just cycle through the buffers so it's uh it's kind of a like a an array you just cycle to the next file um, and if you open multiple files then you just continue and you want to get from file one to file three you cycle through file two until you get to file three so um anyway but yeah it's uh it's been a great workflow so uh with um especially with react native and exponent i mean it just uh the tooling um, just fit what I was able. It was my existing workflow. I was able to use the the tools I had, and yeah, they just fit right in. So I know when it comes to Vim, colors and syntax highlighting is always a little off, right? Like it never gets to where you want it to be. Is there a specific theme that you use, um, you know, to get to where you're at? Uh, my favorite so far has been Grovebox. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. But it's it's had the best JavaScript support for me so far. I've not heard of that one. I um I use one of the dark themes, so I I, I like that dark. Um, I'm interested to know uh, what what percentage of us are, are uh, using a dark background with related to code versus a white background. I recently switched about a year ago from this harsh what looks to me now like is a harsh white background to having a um a dark background with with different text or lighter text for me i like to have a extremely extremely dark background with as bright text as i can find and um, right now i'm using sublime and i don't know the name of the theme that i'm using but it's a combination of lime green baby blue and peach (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, the stuff I use is similar to that that default um, theme that comes with it. Uh, with um, I forgot the name of the editor that you just said, but that uh, can Sublime. be edited out. Yeah, yeah Sublime. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it comes with Sublime. So yeah. yeah, I switch back and forth actually. Sometimes I'm in a dark mood, sometimes light mood, and I can't do the extreme like Natter because to me it just gets blurry, and you know the really really bright on the really really dark just starts to run together for me but i'm older than you guys so my eyes aren't as good i don't do the extreme but i i do certainly like the the darker background it seems uh my eyes i i just noticed that they were less tired at the end of the day and i could uh and it's not that i needed to code for long hours but um I don't know. Did you have you guys noticed that? Is that the reason that you use a darker background, Natter? Or yeah, I've just gotten used to using a dark background, and um, I just find it easier to kind of look at the code and understand what's going on a little faster. It's just easier for me to kind of read, pretty much. Is why I do it. Why I like it. Yeah. So, what about you, Lee? What's your uh, what's your setup? Yeah, I feel like I need to make a disclaimer on that before I get started. Okay. Because <laughs> right. I don't use Vim. I can't That's okay. Yeah, I, I was hoping this wasn't turning into a Vim, Vim episode. But. No, I, I hate it. I can't stand it. When I started coding in the late 90s, 
my friends were using it and I hated it then and I hate it now. But I mean, I know great programmers, the best programmers I've ever met all use it. So I'm not knocking it. Well, I hated it at first. I literally yeah. did. I hated it absolutely at first. And then I picked it up and thought, oh, wow, this is amazing. And I think in this. So it just naturally fit. I guess that, you know, one of the, that first crazy Vulcan key combo you have to do to like save and exit without a bunch of prompts or something. After that, somebody showed, oh, you, hey, you just hit this, 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 and this, like five keys at once. I looked down and said, you're, you're an idiot. I'm never, I'm never doing this. So, and then every time I go try to use it, same thing happens. I have to go click, 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 click. And I'm like, you're crazy. But so. And I also had to Google T-Mugs when Peter mentioned it because I had no freaking clue what that was. Um, oh, do you want me to dive into that a little bit? T-Mugs is freaking awesome. You can because I may not be the only person out there that has never – I've never heard of it. I, now, after I Googled it and saw it, I recognized that our back-end team uses that or a version of that. I didn't know what the heck it was called. I think Linnell uses that. Yeah, I, did, I, I didn't know what it was, so – so Tmux is the next version of Screen. If you've heard of Screen before, the ideas are the same. It's just kind of these like virtual sessions. Um, and so like the the first like big part about Tmux is that you can split up the windows any way you want them to, right? You can have like three terminals across, up and down, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, but some may argue iTerm could do the same thing. Uh, but what happens when you close iTerm? Uh, you lose all of that. With Tmux, when you create sessions, you can close iTerm, you can do whatever you want to do um, and reopen it, and you can just hook back into that session, and you haven't lost your workspace whatsoever. Uh, there are even plugins. There's there's a Tmux plugin manager, uh, and there's a plugin that even lets you persist uh, Tmux sessions across restarts too, so you literally never lose your workspace when working on something. Um, it's super easy to resize stuff. It's super easy to connect to numerous sessions and just like work on other projects. That's kind of how I use it. I split it up between projects and then just like lay things out a certain way. And just when I'm finished working on something, I just like disconnect from that session and reconnect when I'm ready. Yeah. So it keeps it kind of like the window manager thing Kevin was talking about, but specifically related to the terminals. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So I, I don't, I guess, continue. Well, first, I'll continue with my disclaimer. So, you know, I come from a background of enterprise job applications, especially from uh, a government standpoint. And so Eclipse was what you used back then. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of say in the development environment. It really was dictated to us by our customers. We were consultants. So, you know, when we were doing Java, Eclipse was just the standard, and that's what you use. So you got used to the IDE world, and then we actually moved from Java to .NET, um, and of course use Visual Studio for .NET, which is another IDE massively better than Eclipse. So that's kind of where I, the background I come from. So I like IDEs, and I've tried them all. I've tried uh, JetBrains. I've tried Atom. I've tried. Well, I, I call it Atom and. Visual Studio Code IDEs, they're really slimmed down versions of it. JetBrains is more of a full-fledged IDE. Um, but right now, I'm using Visual Studio Code uh, for all the React Native stuff and, and just about any React stuff that I do, actually, and really, really enjoy it. They've got a version 
in the works uh, taco tools i know we had mentioned it in a previous cast but it will have full intellisense for react native which if you've never used intellisense in, before um, in visual studio there is no better autocomplete um, i mean it is the de facto standard for autocomplete and they're going to build full intellisense in with react native uh, all the react native objects into the react native plus vs code it's pretty cool, uh, and they're also doing tasks. Like you can run React Native bundle, React Native whatever from there, and you can debug and set breakpoints inside of Visual Studio Code, and you don't have to go to the uh, console and Chrome or anything like that. It's just it's pretty cool things on the horizon for IDE lovers. Um, I like IDEs because everything's organized at one place. The syntax highlighting is always on point. I never have to fight with that. Uh, and the autocomplete is usually better. Um, but as far as my physical setup, I have two monitors, a large 4K 28-inch monitor and then my laptop screen. And I, I use the new uh, El Capitan split. You know, if you hold the little green maximize button down, then it'll kind of let you do a half and half. I don't know if you guys have experienced that yet. But it, uh, I use that and I do the my actual coding window on one half and then Chrome or whatever simulator or whatever I'm using to view what I'm doing on the other half. And then on my smaller monitor, I have communication stuff like Slack and email. Um, I do a lot of Xcode stuff too. And I usually swap out the, just do the desktops on the larger monitor. You know, I don't usually, I'm not using Xcode and, uh, VS Code at the same time for long periods. I'm usually either or. So do you do all of your your React Native coding just in um, in Xcode, it, or or is that when you would uh, if you're if you're coding something with React Native, you would use the VS uh, Studio? Yeah, I use uh, Visual Studio okay. Code, okay. code, and you know the Xcode would be running, and you can um, have your little simulator. Just have the simulator running. Uh, on the side and do it that way. Yeah. Awesome. And same with, uh, you know, rat web is kind of works exactly the same. So you don't have to change your, your setup going from one to the other. It's just simulator versus a Chrome window. Awesome. I'm actually really excited about Microsoft's fork of node. I've been hearing some really cool things about it and I wonder how that would change, um, react native and, uh, react and all those things that depend on node. Um, can you go into a little bit about that? I haven't really heard much about that. So I don't know much more than what I've been seeing on Twitter lately, and that's with uh, Microsoft writing a super ES6-supported version of Node. Uh, so even though like we're constantly getting updates to Node, uh, we're still really far behind on Chrome's version of it, right? Both SpiderMonkey from Mozilla and Chakra from Microsoft have, like, way more ES6 features than we're currently used to. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, that's all supposed to change. How it all works and any other details, I'm not too sure about. Um, and I, it could just be hype, right? Uh, but from what I've heard so far, it's pretty exciting. That's awesome. Uh, we have a few people from Microsoft that are going to be joining us either in the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure which day. And uh, maybe we can shoot that question to them when they're on. Yeah, it'd be really cool to 
to see and hear and like how that would affect uh, our ecosystems right now. You know, like would we have to do anything crazy to switch to using spider monkey or switch to using chakra? Like, is it going to be easy to do? You know, uh, those would be some really cool questions to ask. Um, this might be a little off topic, but it does have something to do with tooling, I guess a little bit um, and workflows. So have, have you guys ever used a service like appetize.io or how do you kind of let your team kind of test and and look at the apps that you guys are building like uh when i say team like non-developers so that's where i think exponent is really cool because i just have them download that app send them the link to uh the app like especially if it's a super easy react native app and they can just like slack me like their um feedback yeah i mean i think if it's something i'm showing someone i'll um I'll, I'll use exponent. Um, but so far I've only really worked on, um, uh, react native and everyone had to, uh, that needed to had access to the code base and so they could run it locally, um, and then show it to the additional management or, or project managers that, that wanted to look at it. So, um, I've not really done much of the sharing, but I mean, I, I'll default to exponent, um, just for its simplicity. Now, of course, though, that's without, um, you know, an app that doesn't require native um, bridged components. So yeah, and I, you know, I think for me, it's the ops that I actually enterprise sign the IPA and post it with a HTML install link, and then just send the install link to whoever I want. I used to use TestFlight. I used it a lot before it became part of Apple. Um, but it's almost just as easy now to just throw it on the, the new IPA on S3 and send our team the link and say, hey, go install this. Uh, we have done some remote bundle. So in your app delegate, point the bundle file to an external URL. And then when you can have update anything not native, you know, anything pure JavaScript, just by updating that bundle and then we wrote it into the app to where it checks you know it loads from that bundle so they just get the updated version they don't even really realize they're getting the updated version um it's a real dirty i guess version of like a code push kind of thing but before distribution uh, i still sign enterprise sign it with enterprise certificate uh, in iOS now we have to do that anyway I did that because that's what I'm used to but we have to we're using external third party um, native components for communication and messaging and things like that so uh, exponent wouldn't work there's a lot of custom things in there now to uh, share your app with exponent you have to be currently already using exponent correct right and you have to you have to be signed in um, and, and then publish uh, you get a publish button that'll give you a URL, uh, and it's it's a uh, exp colon slash slash. Um, and then what's neat is that you can have that link like sent to a uh, uh, an email address or phone number right from within Exponent, um, or you could just send it any other way. And um, if you're on iOS and you open that link, so say it was texted to your email, you could just click on that link and the Exponent app that's uh, uh, installed, as soon as you click on that link, it will open that app in 
any exponent application. So uh, whenever you're dealing with someone showing them, it's not like they have to go and cut and paste that and inside of exponent. It, it seems to respond directly to that. So. So this is sort of off the beaten track here, but have any of you guys tried Nuclide with React Native? I haven't. So Nuclide is this, um, it's like Facebook's text editor that they built on top of Atom. Um, and you're supposed to do some really cool stuff with it. Like you don't have to open up Xcode. You don't have to do anything crazy. Everything just works. You've got the task runner built in. Uh, but for some reason, I haven't been able to set it up that way. Um, I still feel like I have to open up Xcode and stuff. So I was curious to see if you guys or if anyone else out there uh, has more to say on that. No, I haven't looked into it yet. I have heard of it. So um, how would that go about as far as the um, iOS simulator goes if, if you're not using Xcode? So you could still use the iOS simulator because you can open um, the iOS simulator without Xcode. Um, but that's about it really like you there uh so there's a way to use the ios simulator without using xcode and then you just pair that up with new clyde yeah and then cordova does you know it's like cordova has been doing you can run simulate a cordova app and it will just start the simulator but not xcode or android it will start an android simulator but not open the full android id gotcha yeah, I did. Uh, it seems like when I first tried Nuclide, I had trouble getting it to work too. Um, but then I knew I saw that it was built off Atom, and downloaded Atom, and it was great. And I used it for a while. Um, it actually started crashing on me for large files, like JSON data files and stuff, a lot. So I just started kind of playing around with other things, and we down we we were playing with Visual Studio Code early on, and at the time it was only TypeScript and Node applications. And then they announced full JSX support. And I tried it again, and just kind of been using that ever since. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, I still haven't had a chance to screw around with Visual Studio um, Code, but I definitely should give it a shot. Um, I've been sort of like leaning towards giving NeoVim a shot, which is like this complete rewrite of Vim. Um, everything's much faster and smoother. Uh, but there's, I I need to give uh, Visual Microsoft Visual Code or Visual Studio Code a shot because I've been avoiding it for some reason, and I know it's gonna bite me in the butt when I find out it's like the best editor ever. And save some questions because some of the guys we have coming on are actually working on that. Visual Studio Code plus React Native uh, build. Oh, gotcha. So um, as far as keeping up with all of the newest versions and stuff like that, how do you guys go about, uh, I guess, number one, keeping up with what's going on in the community? Like what's your um, way of getting that information? And number two, when a new version of React Native comes out, um, how do you guys all go about um, updating it in your code base on whatever application you're currently working on? Uh, so that used to burn me in the butt every time a new version came out because I felt like all hell would break loose. Um, maybe I just like didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I would literally create a new branch. I would update everything, test once, test twice, you know, test five more times to make sure that it all works before merging it into master. 
uh, because there, I don't know about you guys, but there were times where I would upgrade, but then I may have accidentally made a small change and then I would, uh, check out like a previous set of commits and it still wouldn't work. And like, there would be like the node modules like mix up and it would just like drive me crazy every time. No, no, you're definitely not the only one that, that is a, that was a regular occurrence. I would say was because we haven't really had that happen. Or maybe we just haven't upgraded in a while. That's probably why we haven't had it happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's what everyone just like realized that you need to stop doing like, okay, we were at the point where everything was is awesome and stable. Let's just stick to where we're at, and we'll upgrade in a few uh, minor versions. Yeah, that's definitely what we do. We evaluate. And as far as your first question was how do you keep up with stuff, you know, the reactnative.com site's great because it kind of shows a lot. It pulls in a lot of uh, posts and tutorials and things from other sites. But uh, they've also gotten really good about putting the release candidates in there and, uh, you know, in a like kind of pinkish-reddish background so you can really see oh there's a new version out there so it's a great place to stop and just check through what what have i missed because they kind of aggregate stuff there it's not you know it's not just one site they're aggregating for a bunch of sites but for the update yeah we will evaluate what has been fixed and added in this release to see if it's something that we even need or as important and regardless of whether it is or isn't important, I, I usually like to try to, to create a branch, like you said, and try the upgrade, you know, rename the or increment the version in your package JSON and run the NPM install and, and give it a shot and see how it goes. But if it if we have a lot of errors and it seems like it's going to be a problem to get it to work correctly and the feature list doesn't hit anything that we need right now then we don't worry about it um because honestly we haven't since we've been using it there hasn't been since the animation component was updated there just hasn't really been anything that we ran into and it was like oh man we can't use this because it doesn't do x most of the stuff that's in a release for us these days are, are nice to haves not uh necessary or gotta haves for us yeah, I tend to, um, on the React Native side, just kind of stay on uh, a release and um, I'll give it a try. Uh, I've run into some errors where there's some Xcode issue that I literally have no idea. Um, I try to follow whatever it's it's indicating is the problem and that turns out not to be it. And um, So I, um, I've rarely upgraded a React Native um, project and... I'll add that I don't have uh, one of those in production, so it's it's okay that it's not updated. And and uh, like Lee said, I I, it, I really don't have anything that um, I need from from the new features or bug fixes. So um, whatever I'm I'm doing with my custom components uh, seems to just work with that version. Um, as far as exponent, I I noticed that. Um, well, it does come packaged with their own version or their own fork of React Native. Uh, they seem to do pretty frequent releases, and they um, in the package JSON, each release is marked with a date. So that seems to not be an issue. And I've switched a time or two to a different version. So I think you know, uh, and of course those are um, 
Okay. I'm yeah. sorry to throw your train of thought off. I was that's just like something yeah. that's been boggling me for the longest time. Right. Yeah. So I'll I'll collect my thoughts and then I'll um let me pull up the page. Uh, so if you go to exponent exponent js uh, React Native. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I'll, I'll paste this in and I'll talk about it uh, once I collect my thoughts. But yeah. Good. Thanks for um thanks for chiming in so I can clarify. So what I like about uh, Exponent is that it has releases and they tag those releases by the date that they do it. And that's some some date tagged in their fork of React Native. Um, and then to update to one of those, uh, in the package JSON that's in your Exponent um, file, uh, project, you uh, it's like updating the Git branch. You simply update the React Native and you do pound sign and then the date. So there was a release on uh, January 1st, I'm sorry, January 2nd of this year. So um, uh, 2016-01-02 is the branch name. Um, and then uh, run npm install, and it seems to take care of that. So I've not run into anything. Now, of course, uh, again, these um, uh, exponent apps aren't using bridge native uh, modules. So there may be something uh, that's, you know, just due to the nature of a React Native app. And if it's using uh, something that's bridged to the OS or um, or what have you. But um, for the most part, I try to stay away from upgrade and approach with caution. So <laughs> yeah, for me, I kind of, well, for our, our company, we have upgraded a few times. We started off on a very, very, very early version. I forgot what version it was, but um, we've had no choice but to upgrade just to be able to use some of the newer features. I believe we're on 0.17 now. Is that, is that right, Lee? I was thinking maybe 15. I have to check it and see. Okay. I, don't, I don't think we're at 17. 17 is pretty new. We're, we're around there. Um, but as far as keeping up with what's going on, um, I try to stay around um, the GitHub re repository. I'm also reactnative.com. Um, I'm, I'm in the Discourse channel, even though I'm not one of the most active people. I just keep an eye out for what's going on there, kind of uh, see the chatter there. It's kind of um, a real-time discussion of like some of the more up-to-date stuff going on there. So I would recommend that. Those three things, I guess, for people that are trying to um, keep up with what's going on in the React Native community. What about as far as uh, debugging any issues that you've come uh, come along when you're developing with React Native? What is your go-to place to kind of uh, answer those questions other than just kind of Googling the uh, question? Without a doubt for me, um, inside a React Native app, I use the console. So I'm a uh, you know, web developer by nature, so the, the web console is, is my go-to, and I find myself logging things out to uh, the console and, and using the uh, the Chrome console that React Native provides, or the, that link between them. Um, so I, I always enable that and um, and, and go out to there. Uh, that might not be the, <laughs> the preferred way of doing it, but um, it's just something that as soon as I saw it, I thought, wow, this is going to make this entire experience so much better. So, Yeah, that uh, brings a good 
point, I think, to share with people, and Nat and I have experienced it. We noticed when we were developing an app, everything was going great, and all of a sudden, the app was, the responsiveness was terrible. I mean, it just became slow as Christmas, moving between, I mean, and we didn't change anything, really, that we knew of. We added some stuff. We didn't upgrade. We didn't do anything crazy. And it took us a while to figure out it was the logging, actually. If you log a large amount of data to console.log, then it actually takes up the thread for the UI, and it will make your app crawl in just a painful way. And it took us a while to realize that. We were, we were dumping out some data. You know, Our app uses a lot of data, and we were dumping out some data trying to figure out what was wrong with it and didn't think much of it, you know, your developers and sometimes your lazy developers and the answer is always, I hey, just log it. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll turn it, we'll, we'll comment that log out later. Uh, but we did notice that excessive logging will kill the performance of react native app. It was kind of a surprise. Oh, wow. That's awesome to know. Um, I try to keep those minimal, but I, I've been in some situations with, uh, um, so with, uh, I, the React Native app I have most experience on it uses a the Flux um, portion from the web uh, implementation, and um, in there, uh, in that dispatcher, I had logging of all the actions and the data there, so I could see how that could. Uh, that that's a lot of data, probably. Um, so, we'll keep that in mind next time I'm in there. Yeah, we were we were banging our head thinking, why? What did we do? We didn't do anything. Why is it it's terrible? And it was we said, well, maybe it's just the simulator, or maybe it's just our environment. So we even tried to run on devices, same thing. I mean, you would hit a button, and it was like a terrible delay before it would go to the next view, and it's just like everything just broke. And we finally finally figured it out. Um, we had added same like you. We had added a data logging, and this just happened to be a really large. Uh, root object in a JSON data set and it basically paused while it spit all that out and then continued the UI. Man. Also on the topic of uh, debugging, so one thing that React Native gives you that uh, it's kind of in your face that I use, but I'll acknowledge is that in the simulator, you when you do something wrong, you get that kind of red screen of death um, that prints out what what happened. What was the thing that it doesn't like. Um, and I love that in React Native. Um, I've been using Exponent for some things, and I don't have that. Um, I've actually uh, been a little frustrated that... Uh, so my Exponent app will just crash. Um, <laughs> and that may be something that happens in the iOS development world, where if you do something that it doesn't like, it just crashes. But... Um, in Exponent, I, it, it literally just crashes, and it would be something like I, um, I was playing with some Flexbox styling, and I provided the wrong or a invalid parameter to one of the um, one of the justification uh, styles. So, like uh, how you would justify a button or some text, uh, and it crashed, and I just was like, wow, I had no idea that I didn't have that red screen of death to tell me exactly what went on. Um, so hopefully that will improve. Um, but I mean, uh, 
I think that 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 debugging right there and how uh, React Native just tells you exactly what's wrong uh, from a component perspective, I think, um, mostly. But uh, I think that's that's a huge win as far as debugging. Yeah, as a developer moving from React Native into React myself, I've almost found it easier to, deb to debug React Native as opposed to actually debugging React with Babel and Web, uh, Webpack and all these tools that I'm using. I feel like I I'm getting better feedback from React Native. I'm not sure if I'm doing something wrong or not in React, but <laughs> that's just been my experience so far. No, that's completely fair. I've actually, uh, so I had the Webpack set up and Babel and all of that. Um, and then this summer, once um, uh, Redux came out um, and I switched over to that, the red screen of death that's apparent in React Native, that has a its own kind of Babel plugin. Um, and so I have, I have that set up. Uh, for my web stuff, but I actually have found that the React Native stuff is more accurate than even that setup. So, even if you even if you know you have it set up right, I think sometimes whatever they're doing in React Native seems to be the right way. So, hopefully, the projects will learn from each other. Have you guys ever tried any of the other console tools like console dot dir uh, or just like? styling your console.logs or using console.trace for debugging? Yeah, I, I use um, the console.dir will give you, like if you've got an object, it, it'll go ahead and expand the object, um, let you uh, navigate through it like in a, a tree view. Um, and uh, there's one, I believe Chrome has it, um, that lets you start a timer and end a timer. I use those every now and then to kind of do a, uh, a poor man's benchmark on some code. <laughs> That's not really the best way to, the best thing, but sometimes it can just give you a, a snapshot of what went on. That's pretty cool. I've never used the time yeah. one, uh, but. Yeah, I, it's on, there's a, a Chrome developer tool, uh, Chrome DevTools console page. Like if you just Google that, Chrome DevTools console and it'll tell you everything you can do with, with the console object in Chrome. And it's got several different use cases in there for, for those things. Oh, cool. I'll definitely have to check that out. Something that I've been uh, playing around with, and I don't know if it's like too crazy or not, is styling um, certain actions, um, whether, whether it's like a flux action or a network request or a UI action, I'll style the console.log a certain way, especially if I'm debugging. And then I, I can kind of like turn on and off like the actions that I want to like help me figure out what's actually happening. You know, I've seen people do that. Can you go into how you do that? Yeah, sure. So um, there are libraries that help you style console.logs. I probably should have used one, uh, but I didn't realize they have any until after the fact. But Basically, what you can do is you can set like a foreground color, a background color, and even font sizes and stuff um, and control console.logs that way. Uh, so I'll use like a light green color for network requests, um, like a light red color, you know, uh, for errors that aren't necessarily uh, like thrown errors, but errors that I believe could be errors, right? Does that make sense? Um, and then... I'll use yellow for UI uh, and then like a light blue color for 
uh, anything flux related. That's really cool. I'm going to have to check that out. And then you can, are you saying you can filter it out based on color? So like basically what I'll do is um, in my code, I'll like, I basically leave the console.logs. I, I have a separate file that handles console.logs. And then basically I had like an on or off switch uh, for whatever, right? So like turn off all network requests and then anywhere there might be a console.log for network request, it'll, it'll stop those requests from showing up. It'll just like return false instead of returning console.log. That's cool. I'm looking in, into something now after you mentioned that, and um, someone's using like CSS in their console.log kind of. Is that kind of one of the ideas around it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's literally what it is, and I never realized it, that it's CSS that you can do. Um, I was just doing background um, and color. Yeah, but you're right. It's just CSS that runs in the console. That's cool. That's really, really cool. Yeah, so I actually use uh, a um, uh, a logger for Redux, um, and it's called Redux Logger, and um, it actually uses that exact same uh, CSS technique to log the um, the actions uh, that are that it's working with, and it it uses different colors for the um, uh, the previous state of your your state, your the action and the data that went went through there so it'll it'll log that object out and then the next state and it uses uh gray and blue and green um so that it you're able to um you know glance at the information and and see what your previous state was but it does it in a very um a very nice way uh, and it's it's all using uh styles and they're kind of like inline styles it feels like so um yeah, it's a, a really neat technique that uh, seems to work across across browsers. So, okay, well, um, speaking of uh, Redux, uh, this is a question that's probably beyond the scope of this episode, and it's something we're, we're going to go into uh, on a full episode in the future. But um, what are some of your guys, you guys' workflows as far as data and managing data, uh, as far as your Flux architecture is concerned? I'll just go ahead and say uh, I use Redux exclusively. So um, that's literally the way I think now. So I think in reducers and a single state. Um, Redux is uh, amazingly simple and I actually ran across a um, uh, an awesome um, boilerplate for, um, uh, for Redux uh, in Exponent or just in React Native. So I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's under the exponent JS user on GitHub, and it's just called Hello World Redux, and it shows you in a single file how to have a, a Redux state um, and manage that through um, uh, in your React Native app, um, and you can begin to see like how simple it is, uh, how easy it is, um, and anything that I I actually don't think I work on any projects that don't have Redux. Uh, anything I would have would be just a vanilla flux, but I think I've converted everything over to Redux. Um, how difficult was it setting up uh, Redux with React Native? I know uh, I've heard some people have some problems with it. That's why I asked. So right now it's on the, the version three of, of Redux uh, is will work with, um, with React Native. And I know that support uh, for four is coming soon. 
Um, so I, I saw that on the Twitters, uh, and I'm certain that once once that is resolved, you know, version four of Redux had uh, a couple of breaking changes, and I know that that'll that'll be a, out and about on the Twitters and uh, ReactNative.com certainly. And I, I think there's a huge advantage once once that that's there. Any anything we can do to get React and Redux into a, an ecosystem, but um, I've not run into an issue with with uh, Redux and um, and React Native on the the 3.0 um, releases. So I think if you're able to uh, kind of stay on that, then you'll you'll be okay. Can you do a quick explanation of what Redux adds to Flux and a, and maybe a touch on reducers too? Because in case somebody has never heard of it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, Redux is a, um, kind of an iteration on the idea of flux. Um, and it's, it's really about a single, uh, a single state. Um, so a single source of, of truth, which is, which is a single state. And a lot of the times the, the pain points that I and others have had, with flux is that, um, and, and other flux variants is that uh, you have your components that are querying stores in some way or another, and that can be essentially multiple states. So you can have something going on in your store, but then if your components are able to pull that data or pull whatever data they want from the stores, you can have essentially a false sense of uh, of, of what your state is. What Redux does, it literally just has a single state that you carry forward. And that state is 100% read-only, so it is passed through a reducer. Uh, and a reducer is just like in a map reduce operation uh, where you loop over something and then you perform a reduction, whatever that is. Um, and the idea is with reducers are that they're pure functions and you always return the state you never mutate um, so if you're adding uh, a to-do to a list you return the uh, state and the that that uh, addition but not you don't actually modify it so uh, you're always returning so it's it has a very functional feel to it um, and then um, you know like that that's really um, that's really the guts of it. It's primarily about the reducer and the state and the state flowing through a, a reducer. Um, you can break it up into multiple reducers and then, uh, but they're ultimately combined into one. Um, so if you think of the best way to think of a reducer is that if you have a function and you have a, a switch statement inside that function and if you're, or you can, or you can have an, a set of if statements, if else clauses, uh, either or, um, and whenever your um, action matches one of those cases or one of the um, if-else blocks, then it will jump into that bundle of code that does a, uh, a, a modification to the state or not, that returns a new state after something is added or taken away. So, does that help? Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think one of the big things that I noticed was like you say the state it, it has its own get state method right and you can call that and it's always there 
You can. You can call it, but I've honestly, I've worked with Redux since um, August, and I've not queried the store directly to get the state. So uh, what's re- what's neat is um, there's a Redux, I'm sorry, React Redux um, package that allows your you to connect. Uh, there's literally a connect function that allows you to um, connect your Redux state to your Redux, uh, React components. And I hook that at the very top level in my application. So my app component or my, you know, home or what, whatever the top level, that's where um, the state gets passed to. So um, after it leaves there, so to kind of bring this full circle, so after you've got your state and after it goes through a reducer, it then will go into my React application and it's just passed down the component tree uh, to wherever needs it. So I'm literally never retrieving or doing that traditional retrieval um, in the flux world where you're you're waiting for the component did mount you're setting up listeners and all of that to query your store um, this is the, it's not necessary so the data once it's the um, state has changed your that connect method simply sends the the new state down the component tree so the state is basically an object, correct? That's correct, yeah. And basically the app is connected to that state at all times, and when the state changes, it automatically knows that. The, it doesn't even have to know. It just is, It's already connected to the state. So when the state changes, the props change if they're connected to that state and all the subcomponents just yep. get all that data. Okay, that makes a lot more right. sense now. Right, yeah. So the um, the very basic example is in that connect method when you're connecting it, you just pass state um, directly into it. Um, so yes, literally on every change to that ob- that um, object, that state object, it will re-render your app. Um, now a technique that's used is is uh, having a selector function that will that can reach into that state and only get out of it what you wish to pass down to that applica- that React application. So you can kind of fine-tune your um, your app. It's kind of the, the fine-tuning piece. But, um, yeah, at the very basic, it, you're just literally passing that state all the way down the tree. So what are you guys using? Is it, uh, anyone still on Flux or one of the variations? Yeah, so I um, we kind of agreed to stick to one single flux implementation for the entire year because we were going through that phase of trying out everything between reflux and alt. Um, and this was before redux too. Uh, so we decided on alt and basically everything at work and outside of work for me has still been alt, um, which is great. I really don't mind it. Uh, I've had some experience with redux, but I still need to dive in, uh, to like really learn, more about it but alt has been okay for me are you are you using alt inside of your react native apps yeah yeah i use alt everywhere uh normal react apps react native everywhere and it's been working fine are you finding that you're able to reuse bits of code uh or maybe your actions or um something of that nature between the web and a a react native app yeah, all that works uh, just fine. Um, 
basically the only thing that I can't reuse, and I'm sure you guys were into this too, is the actual UI view layer. Everything else uh, is just in a shared library. And how are, how are you sharing that between, um, say, your web instance and your React Native? Do you actually have that portion packaged up as a separate NPM package and you just require it in either your web UI project and your React Native project? Or yeah. Um, uh, so basically, it's it's just a private Git repo that I pull in using NPM. So yeah, exactly. It's just an NPM package that I version. Uh, depending on the version that we use, it'll have like different features or updates or whatever. Um, it's basically what we're moving towards uh, doing for everything at Trunk Club. It used to just be a shared library of components that we used across everything, but now what it's turning into is like the mothership of the entire client-side uh, ecosystem. So basically super thin client-side apps. Versions aren't controlled within the client-side application itself. It's all controlled in this shared component library. So if you want to use a certain endpoint that we have for alt, kind of have to upgrade your component library. And in that case, we're kind of all on the same page. The reason why we do this is because we have 30, 30 of these client-side applications, and it's kind of hard juggling all of them at once. So building this like fat shared library has proven to be super helpful um, and easy to use for everyone at work. Have you run into any issues across the client-side apps that are taking advantage of this uh, when either when upgrading or can you talk a little bit about versioning as well and how you do that? Yeah, so like the toughest part about all of this is people, right? Because uh, you can have, <laughs> uh, right, like at the end of the day, um, computers will do what you tell them to do, but humans won't always, right? So like uh, we'll have like five or six people that simultaneously might be working on, you know, a new component for the shared library or whatever. Uh, basically, our rule of thumb is... Um, for every PR, you just bump the patch version up a bit. Uh, minor versions are breaking ones, so you basically can't go backwards. You can only move forward. And some people may not like that because it means you might have to do some extra work to some of your other apps to upgrade them. But for us, it kind of keeps us in line and keeps us in check too and like keeps everyone moving forward, right? So um, with the React Router 2.0 coming out, what we're going to do is we're going to cut a 1.4 release of our shared library. And if you want to use React 2.0 or React Router 2.0, you'll have to upgrade to 1.4 in the shared library. Awesome. Yeah, it's been it's definitely been a learning experience for me because it's I've never done something like this before. But now after six months or so of doing this, it's proven to be an awesome experience. Building new apps has been a breeze, and then reusing components throughout apps, you know, regardless of uh, the platform, has been awesome too. Absolutely. Okay, well, um, we uh, are going to get to a new part of our show that we haven't done before. We've taken some questions from people on um, Reddit and on Twitter. Um, we're going to go over those in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, is there anything else you guys want to go over as far as workflow is concerned? I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, um, I guess I'll go to the first question that we have. 
Um, the first question is, I would like to know more about persistent storage options in React Native, like async storage wrappers and tips on how to implement them. And this is from user CoolBeans on Reddit. So um, yeah, as far as async storage is concerned, the way that I've done it so far is um, if I'm working with a large data set like uh, uh, a big object or uh, array or something like that, uh, just stringify it, save it with a token, and then um, and then when you retrieve it, uh, just parse it. But um, I'm sure there's some other um, ways of going about doing that. Um, have you guys used uh, any async storage with React Native? Yeah, that that's actually all I've used, um, and I I literally use it exactly the way you do uh, as a key value store. Um, the only exception I have is I use immutable JS uh, in everything, and so um, that's uh, there's not really any different. Um, I just have to uh, to JS my um, immutable structure and, and stringify it uh, to go in there. Um, but so far, that that seems to have solved uh, solved all of my needs. Um, and I, I've actually run across a. Um, uh, a React Native um, async storage uh, package that I'm looking at, just called uh, React Native Store, and it seems to uh, kind of wrap async storage to make that a little bit cleaner. Um, and the other uh, the other thing to add is I've just found a, a, a simple um, function. I can't remember where I got it, but just it, it was very simple abstraction on on the async storage so that you could uh, just supply it with a key and a value and it would, it would handle the semantics of, of that, uh, that interaction, getting it in and out of async storage. Um, not that the, what you have to do with the async storage object itself is complicated, but uh, just a minor abstraction. Okay, cool. Well, um, our next uh, question is from Jason Morung um, from Twitter. And um, the first part, it's a two-part question. The first part is, are there any libraries similar to Bootstrap for React Native? Um, the second part is, uh, if I were to create a library for React Native similar to Bootstrap, how would I go about doing that? I don't know. This one might be more philosophical, but I almost feel like Exponent does a really good job of that. Uh, they're not Bootstrap in the sense of just like UI components, uh, but they are in terms of building um, awesome components, whether it's native or JavaScript only, uh, that get the job done, right? Uh, right. That, that's kind of a, you know, that one's kind of in the gray area, but I feel like they've been doing a really good job of giving me components that 100% work the way I want them to. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm not run across any um, anything that, you know, would um would be a bootstrap uh, for React Native, but I have run across a lot of just well thought out components that do one thing extremely well, and um, you know, like I ran across one a week or two ago that implemented the top navigation top nav bar to look like um, you know a, a iOS 9 application. Um, that kind of, uh, I don't know, it, if you 
I think the value with a lot of this is that we're able to implement components and then kind of glue those together versus having a one-stop shop. Yeah, but I, I could see if you wanted to build that, you would simply just have to uh, go down the list of what's necessary, you know, what are all the elements, and um, what's a common style among them, and then um, just set out going one by one. And, and implementing components that uh, that fit that design, um, and then offer themes and, and so forth. So, yeah, and I think I'll add that you know, in native development, everything has this default style. It's usually a very simple style, like an outvest, um a button is a blue text. Uh, you know, it has a very simple style, but it is the iOS style, and then Android has a little bit different take on it. And their philosophy has always been, you know, tweak it as you need it, but try to keep it simple kind of thing. And I think React Native definitely enforces that. And if you use a lot of the objects in React Native, they're actually using the native version. That's what makes React Native so great. It's actually using the native, true native version of that. So if you, you know, use a text or button or whatever, you know, like a text object with an on tap, you're going to get a plain text object, but if you use uh, text input, it's, it's going to look like whatever the default native value is, and then you're allowed to style it however you want, which is the way native tends to approach things. Uh, but there are uh, libraries out there. There's a React Native material kit that has some material buttons and things built into it, so you would just say, you know, button or card or whatever, and it inherits the style based on that. So I would... If you want to build one, I think that's a good one to check out because you know, I personally don't agree with using a material kit theme on an iOS application because it's kind of in the wrong environment. But it would be a good thing to look at to see how are they structuring a button, how are they structuring a text value or an input or something like that. Yeah, I second that as far as the only thing I'm aware of is there's two different material that are out there that I'm aware of. One of them is Material Kit, and then there's Material React Native. It's on mrn.js.org, and they're both pretty similar. And I guess if you were to go about building something like you're talking about, you could kind of go and see what they've done and kind of get a starting point. So that would be a good place to start. I'll, I'll just kind of add to that um what I was saying, I really feel that the React community and the, um, especially the React Native community, has this maybe, a, a, I don't know, an idea that you don't have to have everything in, in a given toolkit to be able to um, produce something. So you're able to literally just piece things together. Um, if you find a set of buttons that you like that, are, are sort of styled the way you want or provide the, the component structure you, you're looking for, um, then you're able to take that and put styling against it. And with a few minor modifications, that component is now yours. So, um, and, and I, I just really feel like there's not the need um, as much as it was for bootstrap um, when it came along to just be a, a good default for web applications that gave some structure to an area that there was no structure. seems like we have a lot of structure um, by the nature of 
where uh, React Native lives on, on the phones. So, yeah, I agree hundred percent. And you know, you can pull up a website and in about ten seconds tell if it was Bootstrap or not. <laughs> exactly. Right. And and yeah, I just don't. I don't think as mobile guy, I don't think we ever want that to be the the case in the mobile world. You download an app and immediately, oh well, it's using this kit. All right. Well, um, that sounds good. Um, I think we're going to go ahead and jump on to our picks. Uh, Kevin, would you like to go ahead with your pick? Yeah. Um, so um, there's a project called React Native Vector Icons. Um, it is simply awesome. Um, it's uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. But, uh, you know, if you want some different icons in your, your React Native apps, um, it See, it's bundled um, what looks like eight or ten different um, different icon sets. Uh, Font Awesome is in there, and Foundation icons. It doesn't have the the Bootstrap stuff in there, but um, it has the Octacons, the ones from um, GitHub, and um, that's just absolutely amazing uh, to me. That you know you've got like a one stop shop of you know, what looks like a total of maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred, somewhere in between there, uh, icons that you can take advantage of in your apps. Um, and, uh, that's, that's really all my, actually, I did want to uh, add one thing, um, to how I keep up with the React native community. Um, React parts has a, uh, a native tab, um, that is just a list of React native uh, packages that are on GitHub that are being updated. Um, it's an invaluable resource, I think, for uh, this community. So definitely check that out. Uh, Lee? Yeah, I think my pick this week is going to be uh, Siphon. It's getsiphon.com, and it's a tool for building React Native apps without using Xcode. Some are something like Exponents. It's a CLI-heavy it is an alpha right now. I just think it's important to highlight these kinds of things because it makes it really easy for somebody who's not familiar with React Native to at least try it out. And if you check out the video on uh, getsiphon.com, you can see how easy it is to create an app and push it and, and see it in your phone. And you can open that simple app and make some changes. And then, you know, with very little time invested, you can kind of see what it's all about, at least get a taste of it. I think that's really important for introducing people to new technology. Okay, Peter? Uh, so my big one has been uh, and still is the ExponentJS React Conf uh, contest. Uh, granted, you only have six days to complete it, but if you watch this before then, uh, you can still win a free ticket to React Conf. Those React Conf I'll tickets are pretty hard to come by these days. Yeah, I actually have a better one, too, because we only have six days uh, left for that contest. But if you haven't heard of JS Tips, it's just one JavaScript per tip per day that lives on GitHub by this guy named Lover A. Joel. Uh, it's a pretty cool repo. It's definitely worth checking out. There's stuff that you've probably never thought about doing, um, and it makes life a little easier. Cool, I'm checking that out right now, JS Tips. Um, my picks are going to be, uh, the first one is uh, Appetize.io. Um, they are who powers the React Native Playground, which I use consistently. And I've just uh, now 
uploaded an app that I built to see how that experience is, and it's been flawless. Um, you know, they let you pretty much um, upload your app, um, Android or iOS. Uh, you can upload uh, Cordova. You can upload. Um, you can upload React Native or Native, whatever. And you can kind of look at it on all these different screen sizes and send the link to other people and let them look at it. So that's one way of distributing your build. Um, my second pick is going to be a blog post by Sebastian McKenzie that I just saw today, uh, 2015 in review. I learned a lot by reading that. Um, the, Sebastian is uh, the person that has uh, built 65, which is now Babel. And um, I didn't realize this but after reading his post um it looks like he used to work with jed uh one of our co-hosts that's not here today for a few months and he's had quite quite the year and it's it was a really entertaining story to read and it's also um, informative about a lot of the stuff that people that have these large open source projects kind of what they have to deal with uh on a day-to-day -day basis and um it's, it's really interesting so um it's Sebastian McKenzie, 2015 Year in Review on Medium. All right, well, uh, that wraps up episode 13 of React Native Radio. Uh, we will see you all next week.